0: This is the Good Judge Men Podcast.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another session of the Good Judgment Podcast. I am Wade Paget. And I'm Tame Kell, and together we will be your hosts. The Good Judgment Podcast is designed for judges, lawyers, and others who are interested in judges and the law and procedure that occurs in a courtroom. Now our focus is on Georgia law and Georgia judges. We normally address issues dealing with substantive law and procedure, but occasionally we have some other topics that we think might be of interest for judges to consider. For those who have been listening to our podcast, we want to thank you and hope that you'll tell somebody else.
0: And don't forget, folks, if you want to contact us, you can send us an email to goodjudgepod at gmail.com, or you can follow us on the uh, web at goodjudgepod.com.
1: Hey, folks, welcome back to the Good Judgment Podcast. I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. Today we are going to go... Through How to Try a Criminal Case. Welcome to Section 1, Pretrial Issues. Now, for those of you who have been through new judge training with, with Tane and I, you know that we give you our trial outlines, but this is literally going to be following a rough outline of my trial outline that we give at NJO, it is updated from time to time, but this is the one that was effective July 21st, 2019. That's the one that we'll post on the website. And
0: what's that website, Wade?
1: It's goodjudgepod.com. Thank and you. And if the, if you are a Superior Court judge and you have access to either the forms uh, repository on... Um, sidebar. Sidebar, or the NJO documents, I will be constantly updating this. This is constantly updated and we go from there. Now, Tane, you may, this is where people are going to realize that we're actually different people.
0: Yes, very.
1: They, they probably think that, that based upon a lot of our seeming agreements on lots of different issues that we have a lot of commonality. But in some of the weeds, we have very, very large differences. You agree?
0: Yeah. A lot of the uh, fist fights and wrestling matches that Wade and I end up having have to do with these kinds of how to try a case issues.
1: Right. So let me ask you a question. And before every trial, do you put the possible possible maximum punishment together with any enhancements and and recidivism notices? Do you put that on the record?
0: This is a place where you and I agree, I think, Wade. Um, yes, I always do that. And and here's a here's an important point, folks. We should never get involved in the negotiation process between the district attorney and defense counsel. But Best practices, not a requirement, not a legal requirement, not a statute, but best practices say that at some point prior to the time that the defendant goes to trial, it is a good idea to put on the record whether there have been any offers made to resolve the case, what those offers are, and also a discussion of minimums and maximums for the particular offenses the defendant's charged with, and whether there are any issues regarding recidivism.
1: You will see a lot of habeas cases come up on appeal where the inmate was arguing I should get a new trial or I should be released from prison because my lawyer never told me what the plea offer was or that one existed.
0: Or that I didn't understand it, even though he told me there was something offered out there.
1: And so that this is our attempt to take that off the table. Not that it's always a winning argument. I don't suggest that, but it is an argument that is made and it's something that takes you just a couple of moments to resolve. Now, Tane, how do you mechanically do it? Sure. So uh, the way that this normally
0: comes up is one of two ways. I either do it at the calendar call for our trial calendar, or I do it right before trial starts. So right before we're getting ready to pick a jury, if we haven't done it at trial calendar, I'll usually do it then. And, and the way that I approach it is this, I will say first to the defendant, uh, defendant so-and-so, uh, understand that the court has no, uh, concern whether you decide to go to trial or whether there is an offer that is, uh, is accepted in this case to resolve the case. Um, that's not something that I get into. Uh, I, I'm here to try your case if that's what you decide that you want to do. However, uh, I am required to inquire as to whether or not there has been an offer made and as to whether that offer's been conveyed to you by your attorney. And so at this point in time, I'm going to put those matters on the record, and I'll have a couple of questions for the assistant district attorney. I'll have a couple of questions for your attorney, and then I'll have a couple of questions for you about that. And so then I'll turn to the assistant district attorney and say, Mr. ADA, was there an offer made to resolve this case? And if so, what
1: was it? It, what do you do when they say, there was, Judge, but it's been withdrawn because he didn't accept it by our deadline?
0: And I say, all right, well, let's discuss what that offer was and what the deadline was um, so that we can all be on, make sure that we're on the same page. Ask him to tell me what it was. In that same conversation, once he tells me what the offer was, I'll then usually say to the defense counsel, counsel, is that what you understood the state's offer to? to be and the defense attorney will nine times out of ten say yes and i'll say if they don't say it off the bat, I'll say, was there a deadline that was placed on uh, that offer by which it had to be accepted? What was that? State will tell me what that was. I'll again say to defense counsel, is that what your understanding was of when the offer was to be withdrawn? They'll say yes. And then I usually say, did you convey the state's offer to your client? And they will say yes. And then once we've discussed that, I'll usually ask the counsel, what are the minimums and maximums, statutory minimums and maximums with respect to each of the counts in the indictment. And they'll go over that with me. Usually there's a long pause while they either look it up or uh, or we have a quick discussion about what applies. But then they'll go over that and I'll say to defense counsel, counsel, is that something that you also discussed with your client? And they'll say yes, either in general terms or, or specifically we discussed that. I'll then usually say, is there an issue of recidivism in this case? And if so, has the appropriate notice been given? And uh, usually the state will say, well, judge, we offered to uh, withdraw the recidivism notice or not to file a recidivism notice if this offer was accepted by such and such a date. Uh, and I would, I sometimes will say, how would that affect uh, the minimums and maximums in this
1: case? And so you it, let them <coughs> interpret 1710-7-A and C. You don't try to do that yourself. You say, so how would that impact this?
0: That's exactly right. Because I also want to make certain that their understanding of how and their conveyance of how that impacts the sentence agrees with what I believe the statute says on that. I want to make sure that correct information has been conveyed all the way around. I then usually will turn to the defense counsel and say, is that the discussion you had regarding recidivism? And is that your understanding of the defendant's record? They'll say yes. And then once we've had all of those discussions, I will say to the defendant, Mr. So-and-so, is that the discussion that you and your attorney, or was all of that conveyed to you by your attorney? And hopefully they say yes. If they say no, I didn't really understand that, I may at that immediate point in time say, well, counsel, do you want to have a few minutes to discuss that with your uh, def- your defendant or with the defendant to see if he understands all of that before we go forward? If they say yes, obviously I'll give them a few minutes to discuss that and then we'll come back. Uh, I will explain to the defendant also that I do not have any control over whether or not the state wishes to keep an offer open or whether uh, the state wishes to put a deadline on that offer. And if the, if the deadline is passed, I have no ability to, uh, to, to reopen that offer. And then once I've asked them if that was conveyed to them and if they understood it, then I will say counsel for the defendant, is the defendant going to uh, accept or reject the state's offer if it's still open? Um, And they'll tell me that, and then I'll turn to the defendant usually and say, is that your decision in the case? And if they say yes, I'll say, great, Uh, trial is scheduled on, you know, Monday the 20th. I'll see you all at 9 o'clock.
1: Folks, I do it in a very similar way. I probably use different words. I probably do different manners. But Tane just did a very exhaustive explanation. Here's the thing I want you to understand you have to be very careful here as the judge you cannot be involved in the offer counter offer portion of this you can when asked tell the parties that you are likely or not likely to accept an offer that's permissible what you can't do is get involved with how about three years how about two years you, that is where you absolutely are going to get reversed it's just a matter of when the appeal goes to the right place so after you leave that, tamed, now we're, we're on trial day now. We're not necessarily in a pretrial status. Yes. We are pretrial, but we are not necessarily on another day. We're on the morning of trial. Do you ask if there are any other issues that need to be resolved before we begin the trial? I usually
0: do. Um, it's part of my uh, trial outline that says, preliminary issues, question mark, uh, along with, you know, explain seating arrangements and all of those other preliminary things that I take care of prior to trial. So yes, I'll usually ask counsel if there are any things, especially things that we need to take up before jury selection, because just like everybody else, if it's the day of trial, I'm cognizant of the fact that we have jurors sitting downstairs twiddling their thumbs until we call them upstairs. And so I try to make sure that I'm taking care of the things that need to be taken care of before we begin jury selection.
1: Folks, when a defendant or a defense counsel asks for a continuance based upon the non availability of a witness, make sure that you go through and you check our, our plea outline, our, our trial outline here. That There must be a showing that that witness's testimony is material before that can constitute a reason to continue a trial. And so all of that is in our trial outline as well. If you have multiple defendants, I usually have a whole separate explanation and discussion with multiple defendant cases, usually as to jury selection and uh, the number of strikes that will be allocated to each. We have an entire outline on that. We'll probably do a podcast on that issue at at some point in time. So for now, we will leave that for an understanding that it's in the outline and you should check it when – if, if that becomes an issue for, for you.
0: In the podcast world, Wade, that's known as a teaser.
1: Well, and, and we have lots of episodes that, that we haven't even recorded yet. So next, and, and, and I guess one of the other issues pre trials is the verdict form. You know, Tane, I think the one thing that you and I do agree on pretty strongly is the importance of the verdict form and how much it can help or hurt the outcome of a trial, especially in the eyes of appellate courts.
0: Absolutely. One of the things that I'm going to uh, ask the parties in most cases to do is to submit, along with the proposed jury charges, a proposed jury verdict form. Now, I will just be honest with you. About 90 percent of the time, I don't get a verdict form. I don't know what it is about uh, about counsel in these cases, but neither side seems to ever give much thought to. What is it we're going to ask the jury when we've presented all of our evidence? So I think it's important, and I think, I think the the watchword in, in devising a verdict form is simplicity.
1: Absolutely. Now, Tane, do you use written jury charges?
0: I do. Um, I You know, I used to be uh, in the other school. I thought or I was afraid that giving written charges to the jury was simply going to cause them to get in the jury room and have arguments over what words meant or what the meanings of certain phrases were. Um, and then I decided that I would try it. Um, and I have made the determination that it is a much better practice to give the jury a written copy of the charges. Um, I will also say though, that it takes more preparation. You yeah, have let's to talk be about
1: ready. let's talk about that. It, and I have always done written charges. It's been my experience that I get far fewer questions than my colleagues from jurors. I agree. And so what I do is I have a I spent the time, spent a weekend making a basic set of charges that would include all the things that I'm probably going to charge in 90% of my cases to include identity and beyond a reasonable doubt and circumstantial and But then what I did was I said, okay, this is going to be a single male defendant. So all the he's and she's would be correct. This is a single female defendant. This is joint defendants. This is where a custodial statement is made. This is where a custodial statement is not made so that my patterns are are already somewhat grossly defined to whatever this particular fact pattern is. And then I add in, toward the end, all of the defense and state requests, even if I know good and well I'm not gonna give that request, I put them in there and make a packet, and we call that Courts Exhibit 1, so that it's a part of the record. So when we come to our charge conference, again, that's at the end of the trial, not now, but when we come to the charge conference, That's when I go through all of that and I can go page by page instead of charge by charge. I do that in advance of trial because I want them to give me hopefully electronic versions that I can simply cut and paste into my patterns and make it one coherent charge rather than having to seek to retype it.
0: Yeah, we do something really similar, Wade. I have a set of charges that we call the the courts charges or courts general charges, and those are the ones that I give in most every criminal case. I actually give that to the parties at the at the beginning of trial, just during those pretrial discussions, and say these are the charges that I normally give. Take a look at them, see if you see any problems or any charges that don't apply in this case, and let us know. When we get to charge conference, of course, that's going to come later in the uh, in the outline. But when we get to uh, charge conference, I have three different sets of charges that we then review. The first is the court's charges, the second is state's charges, third is defendant's charges. And one of the cool things my staff attorney does for us is he goes through and writes at the top of each of those sets whether there is a charge that is um, repeated in the court's charges, the defense charges, the state's charges, because if the state and the defendant both ask for the same charge, we don't need to spend a whole lot of time going over that if they've both asked for it and it seems to be applicable. But we'll talk a little bit more about that later.
1: Do you tell the alternates that they are alternates? I do not. Um, I don't either. I, I, I don't. I think they'll they'll check out on you.
0: I agree with you. I think if you give someone the impression that they're not an integral part of the trial, then they may they may check out. And I don't know about you, Wade, but I've had a lot of circumstances over the last twelve years where I've needed to use an alternate juror.
1: Absolutely, I have too. And I had one time when I forgot to let them go out for lunch, but that's another story for another day. <laughs> we
0: left one in the courthouse one time,
1: overnight. Yeah. Well, yeah. Ooh, yeah. he
0: eventually let himself out.
1: Oh my God. What does that say about? Never mind. I'm not even going to go there. No, I don't go there. Folks, we are going to say this once, and it's going to be applicable in every section of this. The defendant must be present for every aspect of the trial. There are some exceptions that allow you to have the defendant not present for simply scheduling issues and things like that. But why? Why would you ever have the defendant not present when you have a choice? So in Judge Paget's courtroom, my lawyers know we're not going to have bench conferences. They'll say, can we approach? And I actually say, no. Do you need me to send the jury out? Now, during voir dire, is that a pain? Absolutely, it's a pain. But I am not going to have a case reversed because lawyers came and talked to me about something mundane. Defendant gets convicted and on appeal, he alleges I wasn't present for all of my trial. And I don't necessarily remember what we just talked about. So we'll talk about the... the, the, the do you have the lawyers approach the bench?
0: I do not. I, I'm sort of of the same mind that you are, Wade, is that it doesn't cost me anything to send the jury out for a couple of minutes. And quite frankly, after the first day, they get really used to that and they don't really seem to mind it. Uh, I usually say something like, ladies and gentlemen, there are certain things that we're going to need to discuss outside your presence. This is one of those. If you could just step to the jury room for a moment, please. Um, and they'll do it and they don't care. They get to go to the restroom or have another cup of coffee or whatever they, uh, whatever they do uh, back in the jury room. Um, the one thing I will say though is on occasion something may happen and uh, something's not on the record the lawyers maybe just step up to the uh, to the the bench or sometimes I've come out on the bench and the lawyers are already standing there uh, next to the bench to ask me about something in those cases I say we just had a brief bench conference and here's what we discussed just so there's something on the record that's in front of the defendant that's part of the record
1: and you have the lawyers confirm that that you what you just said is I sure do okay well, folks, that is going to be the end of episode one of How to Try a Case. We've just handled pretrial matters, and we've got a jury coming in the courtroom. So with that, we'll take our break. And don't don't forget to check out our trial outlines, including this one, on goodjudgepod.com. If you have a question, goodjudgepod at gmail.com. I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tang Kell. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Good Judgment podcast.
0: This project was the brainchild of Doug Ashworth, the executive
1: director of ICJE. Thanks and appreciation to Mr. Jim Henneberger and the entire University of Georgia College of Law. Without them, we really could not do this. And thanks to Mr.
0: Stephen Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, who helped to edit some of our stupidity and awkwardness.
1: Hey, but nobody can get it all. That's a good point. Tane and I are eternally grateful to the Council Superior Court judges who allowed us to lead new judge orientation for the Superior Court judges across Georgia.
0: And thanks to our NGAO graduates
1: who've been willing to help with this podcast series. You know that these are our opinions and do not reflect the opinions of ICJE, CSCJ, University of Georgia College of Law, or anybody else with an acronym or alphabet name. Or anyone else for that matter. Contact us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com if you have any praise. And contact someone else with any of your complaints. <laughs> but seriously, we would love to have your feedback, both good and bad. Send those comments to goodjudgepod at gmail.com.
0: And visit our website at goodjudgepod.com for outlines and more details about our podcast. Once again, I am Wade Paget, And I'm Tane Kell, and thanks for listening.
1: Tane, I guess it's time to bang the gavel on this one. Any last thoughts before we wrap this session up? No, let's just turn
0: it over to the studio audience, and the crowd goes wild. Thanks for listening to the Good Judge Men Podcast.